0: And thanks for listening.
1: Hey, climate-conscious listeners. This is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org.
2: This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, talks to a soundscape recordist who uses audio to help us see environmental destruction
0: even though to our eye, it looks perfect. To the eye and to the camera, it looks as if there isn't a tree or a stick missing from that habitat. But of course, our ears tell us a very different story.
2: Once we can see and hear the problem, how do we figure out how to fix it? Can science fiction help us imagine solutions? The
3: single person changing the world is a very old science fiction story, basically the rocket ship that you build in your backyard and go to the moon
2: the present and imagining the future, up next on Climate One. (music) Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. When talking about the natural world, we often refer to the beauty that we see around us. But, what do we smell, touch, taste, and most importantly, hear? Today, we'll take a look at what nature sounds like. We'll also explore the role of imagination in finding solutions to environmental threats, from fantasy films to engineering the sky to control the Earth's climate. Let's start with our five senses. Joining Greg today is Tanya Peterson, director of the San Francisco Zoo. She's helping children understand the wild world through slumber parties, where nocturnal animals wake up and vocalize. Jason Mark is author of the book Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. He questions whether a radio-collared wolf is truly a wild animal. And soundscape artist, Bernie Krause, has recorded nature from the Arctic Circle to the Amazon. He demonstrates the impact of industrialization on wildlife with before and after recordings. Here's Greg Dalton talking about wild places.
1: Jason, Mark, does wilderness still exist in the Anthropocene, the age of human disrupted climate?
4: It it does. I'm happy to report that it does. You know, every good nonfiction book starts with a question, and mine is, is there anything that's still really, truly wild in this human age with 7 billion people on the planet, with global climate change, with Amazon drones and and Google (laughs) GPS? And what I found is that there is quite a bit of wildness and wilderness out there, as long as you understand that wildness doesn't mean pristine. But if you understand wilderness to mean places that are undominated by human will and undominated by civilization, then, yeah, I'm happy to report that there's a lot of wilderness still out there, and I think it can continue to serve as a touchstone for our relationship with the rest of nature.
1: Bernie Krauss, you spent a lot of time out in nature, sitting, listening. Tell us how you got into it and, and what a soundscape artist is. Well,
0: my background is in music, mm-hmm. and uh, at one point I just quit and late 70s, went back to school, got my PhD in bioacoustics because I wanted to work outside. I wanted to be close to the natural world. And so here I am. I find myself recording animals for a living. And uh, I just found that this was one of the most rewarding things I could have possibly done as far as it, life's choice it was concerned.
1: And so you go out there in nature, you got your headphones and you sit there for a very long time with a big microphone and just kind of sit there
0: capture the soundscapes because the soundscapes uh, they give us a sense of place and they have a lot of information in them and uh, mostly we've been looking at the natural world and trying to observe it from what we see but the natural world has a voice and i wanted to give that voice to you know as many people as possible through these recordings and make it possible for them to hear what beauty is out there and what resonance is out there because it really informs us about how we're doing in relationship to the natural world.
1: A lot of people do think of looking at nature, not so much about hearing nature. Tanya Peterson, when you're designing the San Francisco Zoo, do you think mostly about looking?
5: We think about sound as well. We try to make the zoo accessible to all so that those with disabilities can also hear and touch animals and wildlife as much as possible. And you can spend the night at the zoo, and you hear the animals all night. You know, most animals are nocturnal.
1: It's a fun thing to do with kids. Tanya Peterson, how is climate change changing the role of zoos?
5: Uh, I think it's stressing the importance. Uh, we view ourselves as sanctuaries, the Noah's arcs of species, if you will. You know, all of the animals now at the zoo are either endangered, threatened, or rescued. And uh, our hope is one day we can return some of these species to the wild, back to a safe, if not pristine, wild.
1: Bernie Krause, animals in captivity, is that a bad thing or a good thing? It's a real thing.
0: And uh, it's very much a part of our culture. It goes back thousands of years. I think it's sometimes really important. As Tanya was talking about, it's it's an ark. It's a place where... A lot of animals can be rehabilitated. Uh, Whether or not they can be reintroduced into the wild is another issue altogether. First of all, you have to have some place to put them. The place has to be secure and safe. If you reintroduce a rhino in Zimbabwe or uh, Mozambique right now, uh, its chances of surviving longer than a week or two are not great.
1: I want to go to some of the soundscapes. We have a couple of clips from Bernie Krause's work. So the first one I want to cue up, Bernie, tell us what we're going to hear about Lincoln Meadow.
0: I've been recording at Lincoln Meadow for many years. And in 1988, a logging company came through and tried to convince the local population that there'd be no environmental impact from selective logging, a new thing they were trying to do. And so I asked them if I could record. They allowed me to record. And this first recording is before selective logging.
1: Okay, let's hear Lincoln Meadow. You can hear how robust it is
0: when it's a really vital habitat. Here it is, a year later, after logging.
6: Here comes uh, a woodpecker.
0: The difference is palpable. And uh, these are the kinds of things we need to know about to make good decisions.
1: And that's selective logging. You have (laughs) clips where there's clear-cutting, and it's even more of a dramatic change. So that's species that had to move somewhere else because their habitat was destroyed.
0: Yes, and they never came back to that habitat again, even though to our eye it Mm. looks perfect. To the eye and to the camera, you can frame a shot, and it looks as if there isn't a tree or a stick missing from that habitat. But, of course... Our ears tell us a very different story.
1: That's interesting. I think, look at Sierra Club calendars, look at nature. Oh, it looks okay, but we're yeah. not paying attention. We have another one that shows the impacts of climate change. So, Bernie Krause, tell us about Sugarloaf State Park.
0: Sugarloaf State Park is in the Mayacamas Mountains, which borders Napa Valley in the east and Sonoma Valley in the west. And I've been recording there for 20 years. When I first started recording there, spring occurred at a certain time of year. Now it's two weeks earlier. You can see how climate change is affecting the bird populations. You'll hear a nice robust piece in 2004. In 2015, nothing.
1: Let's hear Sugarloaf.
0: This is 2004. Now we're coming up on 2009. Spring's occurring two weeks earlier. Bird populations are beginning to thin out. Now here comes 2014. Almost nothing, no stream. And 2015, absolutely nothing, silent spring. We had no birdsong where we live in Sonoma Valley. It's the first time in 77 years I've experienced a spring without
1: birdsong. Jason Mark, if someone was born when those sounds didn't exist, they don't know what they're missing, right?
4: You know, as a culture, as a society, we're on a kind of a hamster wheel of collective amnesia. The baseline is always shifting. So what a baby boomer might remember as a degraded landscape would then, for a Gen Xer, be the norm. And a millennial will come along and might think it's rich and full and vibrant. And so it makes the work of conservation really hard. It's why I think this sort of natural history recording, whether it's you know film or, or photographs or video or audio, is so important so people can sort of see as things have changed. And it's not just academic navel-gazing. I mean, it really does make it hard for land managers on the ground to know what are they trying to preserve. Is it a snapshot of a place in time or is it the biological processes of recurrence, regeneration and, and you know, restoration?
1: Tanya Peters said, do zoos have a role in either documenting this change or, I mean, do you ever think about the shifting landscape, the migration, the, the the extinctions, or are you just looking at a place in time for what is now?
5: Well, with climate change, we've had more warmer days than not, so maybe it's good for attendance at the zoo, but... Uh, We are actually trying to attract migratory species, be the zoo without cages, um, to provide a safe haven for the migratory birds and other species coming along the coast. But mostly our mission is to educate, let the Generation Xers know the world might be something different in the near future if we don't take action.
1: Actually, the city has plans to move the highway right closer to you because the ocean is advancing.
5: Yes, we will be one of the only zoos in the world actually uh, on the ocean. And we, by uh, <laughs> <Not my>
1: choice, <laughs> you know, you,
5: you make lemons, uh, you lemonade out of lemons, as they say. So, with this new situation, we will be building the coast in as part of uh, the zoo actually, and uh, create an outpost for children to look at the ocean. For those of you in San Francisco, we have kids coming from Hunters Point, Bayview. They're excited to be at the zoo. They're doubly excited to see the ocean. They had no idea San Francisco bordered the ocean.
4: Jason, Mark, as we're facing these cascading eco-crises from climate change to the acidification of the oceans, a lot of the work has become, out of necessity, self-preservation, you know, redesigning our cities, redesigning our technologies, redesigning our energy system, why are we doing it we're doing it for ourselves but at the end of the day it's about trying to trying to save a, a world worth saving right and so a lot of the wilderness movement is about safeguarding the intrinsic rights of other critters that are out there we don't just want to save nature for the instrumental value it provides us for its ecosystem services that these things have got a right in and of themselves
1: And that's also where Pope Francis is, talking about communing with nature and think more about the inherent value of nature. Burning Kraus?
4: I think that he makes a
0: really good point about preserving the natural world and uh, becoming the stewards that we need to become.
1: You write in your book about nature can help uh, PTSD and forest bathing, you know, sort of like being out in nature under the canopy of trees is actually good for human health. I mean, this is not just like, oh, when I, I feel good when I'm in nature. This is starting to be scientifically proven.
0: It's still a little bit anecdotal because the whole field of soundscape ecology is just a few years old. But we're beginning to think about doing studies that engage people who are in heavy medication or cancer survivors where uh, they are listening now to natural soundscapes instead of music.
1: And you also write about auto traffic can actually impair people's IQs at certain ages. I mean, that's a world, that's a world health organization
4: study. Jason Mark. When you go out to the deep wilderness, the one thing that's going to remind you of civilization is going to be jet traffic. 20,000 flights a day, either small craft or jet airplanes, taking mm. off in this country. That is like the ultimate mark of civilization. We've taken ownership of even the sky, and it's so hard to get away from anthropogenic sound. You know, I went to the heart of the Olympic rainforest, in part because it's supposed to be one of the few places in the continental United States where you can sit for 15 minutes and not hear a human-created sound. And so I think actually this human din that's around us is is contributing to people's sort of sense of, what some people feel is sort of a sense of claustrophobia, right? That there is no way, there's no place to get to. And again, Bernie's work has been so important to to make us aware of that.
2: We're talking about listening to wilderness at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about getting in touch with nature with soundscape artist Bernie Krause, author Jason Mark, and director of the San Francisco Zoo, Tanya Peterson. Here's our host, Greg Dalton.
1: Bernie Krause, I want to talk about art. Mozart and Vivaldi were inspired by natural sound.
0: No, they were inspired by single individual critters, Uh which a lot of musicians have done in the West. So a bird for Mozart, his favorite pet starling... There was a fellow by the name of Messiaen, a mid-20th century composer in France who used a lot of bird song. But again, he was taking birds out of context when he and his wife went to the French forest. And he was only notating the birds that happened to fit the musical paradigms of the French Academy, all the other birds he left out. And so we actually composed a piece that was commissioned by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, the Great Animal Orchestra, which included, for the first time, Live animal sounds with a 70-piece orchestra, and it was um, way cool.
1: <laughs> I bet. Thinking of Peter and the Wolf when you were talking about that, uh, Jason Mark. You write a lot about wolves in your book. They're endangered. There's a tension between uh, livestock and hunting with the wolves. The reintroduction of the wolf in the American West has been a big story, controversial story. Where is it now?
4: You know, you almost see like a scorecard to follow. It. Is the wolf on or off the endangered species list? You know, the wolf has long been the totem of wildness for a lot of people. Adolf Muria, a famous 20th century wildlife biologist, called the wolf's howl the voice of the wilderness. And yet you also have like a great outdoorsman like Teddy Roosevelt saying the wolf is the beast of waste and desolation. And so the Mexican gray wolves down in the Gila wilderness, there's only 106 of them out on the landscape. They're eating cattle, they're eating elk, they're behaving as wolves, but they're not exactly free. Those 106 animals are probably the most closely monitored and managed wildlife on the planet i think it's fair to say federal and state wildlife agents have to track them every week and it's hard to kind of think about what wildness means when you think about wolves that are out there and they're all wearing gps collars. they all have pit tags you know the kind of tags that some people put in their cats or dogs with a social security like number so are these animals really wild The ranchers
1: really don't like the predators, even though they're healthy for ecosystems. They're bad for ranchers'
4: business, There's no question about that. I mean, once you strip away all the symbolism, what you get is the fact of brutal competition. Wolves are antagonistic to our interests, or there's an innate conflict of interest, at least if we are not going to be vegetarians. If you are eating meat, there's going to be a conflict between our interests and the wolves' interests.
5: Tanya Peterson, any wolves in captivity? We've been asked to bring in two wolves, the Mexican Mm. uh, wolf that was just described, and we happily will. And again, I think some of it is just a misconception. My understanding and our observations are the wolves really go after the weaker of the herd, which in some ways may be beneficial. That's nature. That's nature. And so, you know, again, all due respect to those in the industry, I I think they have overhyped the situation. Again, though, this is where I think a zoo can play a role. The wolf needs help. Uh, We have the space. We're converting the uh, old polar bear exhibits into wolf terrain, and we can play a part in conservation. We do have two wolverines. They are just as mighty and ferocious, smaller, and they seem to attract a lot of University of Michigan fans.
1: Bernie Krause, you talk about snowmobiles in national parks. And for someone who I love, Wyoming, and Jackson Hole, and I thought about, wow, wouldn't it be neat to go there in the winter and take a snowmobile? And I think, oh, what about the sound? And tell us your story about snowmobiles in parks.
0: Well, I was asked by the National Park Service to go and record uh, the sound level of snowmobiles in the parks. And it was a time when they were using two-cycle engines. And uh, they would have literally thousands of snowmobiles allowed into the park every day. And so I went up there in the early 2000s and recorded the sound pressure level, which exceeded something like 90 dB, 95 dB. And at one point, the congressional group that was going to vote on whether snowmobiles should be allowed in the parks, these guys, and they were all guys, of course, came in to uh, listen to the sound. I said, I have something I'm going to play for you, two and a half minutes each, one of snowmobiles going by and the other of the natural soundscape as it is when it's quiet. And I had a picture of a wolf eating a bison on the screen. And I said, what I want you to do is, your job today is to figure out which sound best fits this picture. (laughs) And so uh, I played the sounds for them. And when the snowmobiles came by, they were blocking their ears and screaming and yelling and and saying, turn down the sound. Turn. And I said, no, I won't do that. This is what you're voting on. And it uh, turns out that it was a split vote. It was 210 to 210, and Dick Cheney had the deciding vote. I
1: um. guess we know which way that one went. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Hi, right, Carter Brooks, uh, artist and philosopher of climate art. So my question is about the value of witnessing nature as it's degrading and just being whatever, destroyed, I suppose, is a little bit of a strong term. As a climate artist, I'm, I'm mostly concerned with the aesthetics of ice. Nature's used so much by environmental movements as, as just a, as a, as a motivator for action rather than witnessing and accepting some of this degradation that's happening now. What might any of the panelists say about the importance of carving out enough space for witnessing. You know, the ice is going to melt. Are we going to have paid attention to it while we could? Who'd like to tackle that? Jason Mark? The last chapter of my book, I, I shadow some young men, ages 17 through 21, on a mountaineering course of the Rockies. And there was this one really smart, thoughtful kid named Pat. And he says, I did not expect to see all these dead husks because there we are in the southern Rockies, where the pine beetle, bark beetle devastation is really just, you know, torn apart, coniferous forests. And at the same time, he was awed by the scenery, the alpine scenery, the Rockies. So it's kind of both, right? I mean, at the one hand, he's having this profound emotional experience through the sheer physical beauty of the place, but then, yes, the unmistakable disease in the forest was shocking him. So, yes, I do think we need to do some of that witnessing, and it's going to be hard, and it hopefully will be cathartic and that people will take from it a new sense of urgency. I
1: remember a couple of years ago I interviewed the governor of Wyoming and he said people would come into his office and say that global warming business is, is crazy, but these pine bark beetles are killing the forest. We've got to do something about it. Let's have our next question. My name is Rahul. I come from a business background. Are there some concerted effort to really incentivize private enterprises to be included in this movement? so that there is something genuinely in in it for them. Jason Mark, companies are valuing nature for the economic benefits that delivers to humans and businesses.
4: So this idea of ecosystem services, trying to figure out, can we put a, a real price tag on all of the things that nature does anyway that actually serves us very well. I mean, you have the city of Los Angeles is spending, and I want to make sure I get the numbers roughly right, but it spends something like a billion dollars a year getting water into the city and spends a billion dollars a year getting water out of the city through its rainwater management. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And so thinking about ecosystem services, how does nature already provide things like stormwater removal? And that's a really important effort. And I do think it's got its limitations. I think at the end of the day, corporations... If push comes to shove and it's make money or tear out the forest, they're going to make money. But I do think the ecosystem services work has got a lot of real benefit you know, around the edges and changing, I think, cultures within large corporations. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
1: Thanks for a really good program.
3: I'm curious, how much of the information that you put forth here tonight gets to state and national legislators?
1: Bernie Krause. Kraus. You mentioned snowmobiles and and legislators. How about other other legislators who've uh, heard your soundscape of human impacts and climate?
0: Well, there are many who have, and uh, it really depends on their level of curiosity how much they want to really know about the living world and how much they want to learn. And if they're willing to take the risk of... Uh, challenging their own intractable views of things, I think that they're going to come to some conclusions that are really helpful and moral and ethical.
2: You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking with Bernie Krause, author of the new book, Voices of the Wild, Jason Mark, author of Satellites in the High Country, and Tanya Peterson, director of the San Francisco Zoo. We'd like to know what wild sounds you've been listening to. Our email is commonwealthclub.org. or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. So our five senses can help us appreciate the natural world. But how do we save it? That's where imagination can come into play. We're going to turn now to a conversation about imagining solutions for our imperiled planet. Kim Stanley Robinson is an award-winning author of science fiction, and he uses this genre to help us understand climate change. His most recent book is Green Earth. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. He is imagining a future where geoengineering, Human fiddling with the chemistry of the skies at a global scale helps reduce the climate threat. And Oliver Morton is briefings editor at The Economist and author of the new book, The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. Here's our conversation about space fantasies. Ken
1: Caldera, what is geoengineering? This is a very abstract concept. How do you describe it? There
7: are two main categories of geoengineering. If we think about the global warming that humans are producing, it's primarily due to the fossil fuel CO2 that we're adding to the atmosphere. And this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere makes it more difficult for heat to escape to space. And so one approach, which is relatively non-controversial, is to just remove some of the carbon dioxide that we're adding to the atmosphere. But if we think about what's heating the Earth up to begin with, it's the sunlight hitting the Earth, and we're absorbing this solar radiation. So another way to cool off the Earth would be to reflect some of that incoming sunlight back to space. And this is precisely what volcanoes do, and the Earth has cooled after each of the large volcanoes that have occurred over the last 50 years or so. And so the other leading idea is basically to emulate what big volcanoes do, put material in the stratosphere to reflect sunlight. And there's a few other ideas as well, but they're all based on the same idea of reflecting sunlight back to space.
1: Kim Stanley Robinson, is that comprehensive enough, the idea of either sucking carbon out of the sky or bouncing heat back toward the sun? Well, I think that the
3: common understanding of this term geoengineering has (laughs) morphed fairly quickly to the notion that it would be a technological silver bullet where you could do one thing and solve the problem of us burning fossil fuels. So people immediately object to it as a kind of a moral hazard that if we think that we can get away with it, we won't decarbonize fast enough. And then also there's a certain resistance to the technocratic in general, taking over of the planetary ecosystems themselves by some poorly defined technological elite with a method in mind and so many things have gone wrong in, in the human interventions in this planet before that people distrust it on several levels so it's getting attacked almost immediately for things that are not quite right or true and yet I think it's important to point out that we're we're talking about humanity 's relationship to the biosphere and the planet as a a complex system that we can't hack, that's not the right word, but we might be able to finesse it in ways that will keep us from causing a mass extinction event. So we need to talk about it, but it can quickly get scary in several different ways.
6: Oliver Morton? There is this idea of moral hazard. If you're insured against risk, you will be riskier. And the biggest amount of moral hazard that I see in the geoengineering debate at the moment is actually with the carbon dioxide stuff. I was at the Paris Climate Conference. And it was a very inspiring conference to be at. And it came away with the world actually having a set of ambitions of keeping warming well below two degrees, but with pledges on action that were grossly insufficient to that high level of ambition. And so, what you're finding in the discussion about future emissions at the moment is there's an acceptance that in the second half of the 21st century, in the first half of the 22nd century, something somewhere will be pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But there's no real discussion about how that's going to be done. And that's where moral hazard gets really dangerous, because you begin to say, well, always we can trade off emissions cuts now with more sucking out later. And when you haven't really done the research to find out how you might do that sucking out, or what level of sucking out is possible, that's very tricky. So, Ken Caldera, where
7: is the status of testing today? For carbon dioxide removal, there is testing. There's a pilot plant going on up in Canada right now, and also, of course, planting forests and so on is a form of carbon dioxide removal. For the sunlight-reflecting techniques, basically all the research is indoors at this point, mostly in computers.
1: And do you think it should go outdoors? Do you think that there should be real-life, outdoor testing of this technology?
7: I think with appropriate safeguards and oversight uh, by appropriate governmental bodies, there should be outdoor experimentation. But I don't think just rogue individuals should go out and uh, do it themselves. There's, Warn- a,
6: there's, a, there's a really interesting precedent here, which Ken was actually involved in. One of the more radical ideas about removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere was the idea that you could do it by stimulating plankton blooms in the southern oceans. And people tried doing it, and so they went out into the southern oceans and well-instrumented scientific experiments dumped a lot of um, iron in, saw what happened, and it is true that there was increased photosynthesis, not to the extent that they expected, and there were various complications. But what's really heartening about this story is that people took the issue seriously. There is an international agreement about what you can and can't dump in the ocean. The people responsible for that took the advice of Ken and other people and started thinking about how to change their regulations to uh, understand and take account of these scientific needs. And so I think that's something... I I hope you feel proud of it. Do you think that's something of a success story?
7: I I think there was some overreaction there, but overall it was largely a success. Ken Kelder, you've
1: been part of a research effort funded by Bill Gates. What has Bill Gates been funding on geoengineering?
7: Well, first let's just say that his investments in clean energy technologies are a thousand times larger than his investments in climate research of this sort. Our work is all with computer models and uh, trying to understand the consequences of different things people might do. A few years ago, some of this money did go to fund proof of concept for uh, a sprayer that could potentially uh, whiten marine clouds, but that was all done indoors as a proof of concept. Oliver Morton. There's a scientist at the
1: University of California, San Diego, that writes about billionaires buying spaceships, etc., and Bill Gates in particular.
6: Ah, David Victor, yes. David's uh, a very insightful analyst of the political economy of energy. And David's worked a bit on on climate geoengineering. And the thing about putting particles into the upper atmosphere like a volcano does is that you don't have to be all flashy and boomy and multi megatonny like a volcano to do that. You can do that with aircraft or with balloons maybe or something like that. It's not very difficult. And in an era when a man like Elon Musk can, you know, build a space fleet, the idea of building the capacity to alter the planet just out of one person's capital (coughs) is oddly plausible. The idea that the political reality of the world would allow someone to do this without shutting them down, that is a little bit less plausible to my mind. And Bill Gates gets pulled into this because it's known that Bill Gates funds some geoengineering research at Ken and David's Labs and a few other places. And so when you've got a billionaire and you've got this idea that this is cheap enough that a billionaire can do it, I remember hearing someone from Google once talking about a space mission, and he said, is this really expensive? Well, this is something that a guy like me could do. And <laughs> <laughs> and so- to, to, to give
7: an idea of the scale of effort, it's estimated that the amount of flights it would take to maintain an aerosol layer, a small particle layer in the stratosphere, enough to offset all of the warming expected this century would be, about one one one-thousandth the size of the commercial aviation industry. So it'd be about the number of flights each year that occur by commercial aviation every six or eight hours. So it's it's really a tiny, economically tiny cost.
6: Especially if you're talking about geoengineering in some way being floated in on top of emissions reductions. You're talking about something actually yet easier. Sounds like a
1: science fiction novel, Kim Stanley Robinson. We're sitting here talking about it like, oh, a billionaire could do it with a few planes, not that big a deal. Science fiction is becoming closer and closer to just simple possibility.
3: The single person changing the world is a very old science fiction story, basically the rocket ship that you build in your backyard and go to the moon. Solar geoengineering is a kind of an emergency science fiction story. What if temperatures really begin to spike? What if methane begins to get released to the atmosphere off of the ocean floor or the permafrost begins to melt such that the frozen carbon in the permafrost and methane begins to release fast, and suddenly every year it's like two degrees hotter than the year before, and we are clearly reaching a, a moment of crossing one of those tipping points into a completely different planet, a uh, jungle planet. At that point, then you say, we need to put the, uh, but, the uh, dust in the air. But that's Other the one that,
6: that, that's, that sort of scenario is the one that, that really concerns me because that's actually a very common way of framing this story about geoengineering. And a time when the Earth is already going through severe climate changes and geopolitical panic is exactly the wrong time to launch a large planet-changing sort of um, effort. It seems to me that it's much, much wiser to talk about introducing small amounts of geoengineering at a time when the world is not completely freaked out than large amounts at a time when it is.
3: Sure, but wiser means perhaps less likely to happen. Uh, If you run the scenarios, there's, there's never a good one. Uh, For geoengineering, unless you start talking about, let's reforest all the places that have been deforested, the Pacific Northwest, the Amazon, you can capture 100 gigatons of carbon by reforesting. Let's uh, stabilize population. If you didn't subsidize the carbon industry massively by taxpayer money, you already have the crossover power where clean energy could be quickly put in by uh, government-supported projects and it would be full employment, and you could have clean energy so much faster than we thought even 10 years ago.
1: Let's
7: let Ken Caldera get in here. Let's just, I'll posit that everybody on the stage would like to see a clean energy economy as rapidly as possible, and we'll bring it back to geoengineering. The, mm-hmm. the, um, the same climate models that project all these terrible outcomes for global warming universally predict that those climate outcomes will be much less worse with solar geoengineering applied at some reasonable level and do do you think that doing
1: research also makes it more likely that once there's more money more funding more jobs momentum that sort of researching something kind of puts it in motion to happening oliver morton
6: The idea that research necessarily leads to deployment, there are examples where it's the case, because most things that end up deployed have been researched, but there are a lot of examples where things have been researched and then quietly let let go. And I don't think that there's any evidence that geoengineering is particularly pernicious in that respect.
3: Kim Stanley Robinson, Um, the discussion in this civilization has changed so fast in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, we couldn't have had this conversation, but the 10 hottest years that we have on record took place in this century. So global warming is happening and everybody knows it. The denialists are now uh, uh, just a fraction of the power that they had in this society 10 years ago. They're gonna slink away from this and pretend they never said it. And we are going to be in a world of
1: global warming and uh, geoengineering is gonna be something that's talked about more and more. Actually, I'm not so sure that denial has been gone down as the scientific consensus has advanced.
2: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about imagining solutions to the climate threat. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Greg Dalton's back with his three imaginative guests. Kim Stanley Robinson, a science fiction writer of great renown. Ken Caldera, a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. And Oliver Morton, an editor at The Economist. Here's Greg. I'd like to
1: ask each of you, when you think about geoengineering, Kim Stanley Robinson, what gives you fear that people will do the thing they maybe do with the
3: idea that humanity could live on Mars or on some other planet, that they will take less seriously the responsibility to uh, decarbonize fast?
1: Oliver Morton, what gives you fear when you think about the prospect for geoengineering?
6: The big risks are geopolitical rather than geophysical, in my mind. And I find it extraordinary that people say that geoengineering provides a, a, an unparalleled threat to human existence, and it's something unlike anything else we've ever done. We build machines that can end civilization and set them loose in the oceans. I mean, not uncontrolled, obviously, but uh, the idea that geoengineering is a problem that's somehow vaster than the ability we have to start nuclear wars doesn't make sense to me. So nuclear war is what worries me. Ken Caldera,
7: It seems that we've devolved into a period where tribalism trumps uh, careful analysis of empirical evidence. and, And... I think unless we can make political decisions based on sound information, our society's in big trouble.
1: Kim Stanley Robinson, let's turn to uh, Hollywood popular culture. There's been a number of films recently, well, going back to the day after tomorrow about 10 years ago, which talked about the changing Arctic currents and, and kind of like Superstorm Sandy hitting New York. Mm-hmm. There's been others. Matt Damon seems to go to different planets all the time. Uh, was it doesn't out well for him, though, doesn't no. <laughs> does, Yeah, and Snowpiercer was a film about geoengineering gone wrong. Tell us about the portrayal and popular culture of these <laughs> concepts.
3: Well, I've dealt with it myself, and it's a a difficult narrative problem because climate change is going to take place over decades or centuries, and so you want your narrative to take place over days or at most months. And also telling the story of things going wrong is inherently more dramatic than the story of things going right, and as a utopian science fiction writer, I've dealt with that one also. So there are uh, several problems for the way that we tell stories to be able to engage with climate change.
1: However, Morton, some people would feel that Hollywood films will reach people more than scientific papers, that sort of thing. So do you think that popular culture can get people to understand the urgency and put this in a narrative that they can relate to?
6: Perhaps to some extent, but popular culture is very trapped in specific tropes. I know mean, Stan was talking about how you know it's easier to make a disaster. I and mean, thinking about um, the was called the, the day day after yesterday? Day after tomorrow. Day after tomorrow. Okay, the day after yesterday would be today. Um, so that's a good subject for a movie. Uh, day after tomorrow. And the thing there is, he doesn't just make climate change rapid; he makes it rapid enough to actually follow you down a corridor, and you have to run away from it. And you know, there is a lot of popular culture that is designed to you know find things that you need to run away from, and also designed to greatly value the idea of standing up against authority and against received wisdom. And that is actually rather more problematic because one of the things about climate denialism in some of its forms is to say, oh yes, well that's what they want you to think. And that's exactly the sort of view that almost all heroes in conspiracy movies take, right? And so I'm not very sanguine about popular culture as a way of transmitting complex political messages about geophysics. I'm not saying that it's not Possible. I'm not saying that if someone asks me to come and consult on a script, I won't do it. But I am saying that I don't think it's... It's not the way that I think the debate's going to be best shaped. Ken Caldear.
7: I have a little bit more faith in at least one aspect of popular culture because I think we're going to solve the climate problem when the average person thinks it would be an embarrassment or just wrong to build something with a smokestack or a tailpipe. And I think popular culture is very... Uh, good at putting forward these memes and norms and it's not going to be through detailed argumentation that we solve this problem but by a cultural shift where people just feel that it's no longer appropriate to use the sky as a waste dump let's go to our
1: audience questions welcome to climate one
7: hi uh, my name is matt stewart i'm wondering if you were put in charge today
1: and we didn't have a crazy congress you may be able to get something through and you're running for president what would you do with geoengineering right away
7: ken caldera well, I don't want to be too self-serving, but as a research scientist, you know, I would greatly increase the research budgets, but but engage in the research in a way that has a lot of public input and international collaboration.
3: Kim Stanley Robinson, any thoughts? Oh, but you'd Good pay a hundred science fiction novelists to write science fiction novels.
6: No. <laughs> and obviously I would employ yeah. many journalists to do uh, an <laughs> equally fine work. But, but I, I, I must say, I, mean, I, I think the most important thing would be to say, this is something we need to learn about and talk about but we are not going to be leaders of the world in discussing how to use this. We're going to put this knowledge at the disposal of our friends and colleagues around the world in order to have a discussion that it's worthwhile having. Can I um, add, uh, um,
3: since you're postulating a a kingly moment, a carbon tax that increases over time, a solar credit so that people could put solar photovoltaic and solar water heating And also uh, full employment, everybody gets a job that wants one in, in landscape restoration and in creation of wetlands and reforesting the deforested areas. A lot of work to be done. And so these things are specific policies that could really help in this situation.
1: We're talking about geoengineering at Climate One. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
3: Joe Mascaro from Planet Labs. We launched small satellites uh, for Earth observation. My question is about um, our perception of how human civilization interacts with our biosphere. I think historically we've thought of human civilization as something nested within the biosphere. And that is no longer true. I mean, already... Uh, We have a portion of human civilization living on the Martian surface in the form of the Opportunity and Curiosity rovers. We have the space station. How do you think that we ought to recalibrate our perception of the moral considerations of geoengineering with respect to the fact that we clearly already today have a civilization that exceeds the scope geographically of our biosphere?
7: Who'd like to tackle that one? Ken Caldera? I'm kind of a Luddite, actually, on this one, in that I I would like to see humans withdraw to as compact an area as possible and allow wilderness to flourish in the rest of the planet. That's my utopic vision. Kim Stanley Robinson, restore
1: balance of human and nature.
3: This is the only planet we can live on and stay healthy, so there is no planet B. But studying these other places, sending robots uh, with cameras, and sending people as scientific stations, the way we sent people to Antarctica a century ago, it's all fantastically interesting and exciting and useful and beautiful.
6: And I want to just shout out to Stan, because one of the reasons I, I work in this stuff at all is because of the influence of Stan's Magnificent Mars trilogy, which first opened up to me the idea that there could be a world in which the overall environmental world and the political world were entirely united, that there was no distinction to be drawn between the environment and politics. And it's a wonderful work of imagination, and I strongly recommend it to you all.
1: Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome.
3: Hi,
6: I'm Mark Harnett.
1: Is there a
3: way to test the solar engineering on a local level? Once you put stuff under the stratosphere, does it necessarily affect the whole planet?
1: Ken Caldera, could this be tested regionally? There are some suggestions for along the California coast or other places.
7: There have been proposals which have not yet been evaluated, that, for example, a fine mist could be created off the coast of California that would then cool the ocean and increase the amount of coastal fog, which is dissipating as the planet continues to warm. And if this fog goes away, a lot of the coastal redwoods could go away. And so... It's been suggested that a fine spray might be able to maintain the coastal redwoods. Similarly, uh, if the ocean's cooled off in this way, it's likely that a increased cool, moist sea breeze could come into the desert southwest. The idea that, oh, by spraying some seawater in the air, that you might be able to cool off uh, what will become an increasingly parched region. So these are still in the realm of speculation, but uh, I think it's the kind of thing that people would like to understand better. Those would
6: be projects, though, that weren't aimed in and of themselves at changing the global climate. Oliver Morton? There's no way to test the planetary effect without getting a planetary effect. You could test some of the side effects by doing small experiments. What happens to the chemistry and physics of the upper atmosphere when you put this in? Some people have suggested that you might be able to do short-term effects on something like a heat wave. But in general, this is a planetary sort of phenomenon, and you will not know exactly what you get until you get it. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
3: Hi, I'm Jessica Loving from the Breakthrough Institute. I have an opposing hypothetical geoengineering experiment. So suppose we're really successful at deploying clean energy shutting down coal plants, providing people electricity so they stop burning wood and dung, we'd have a dramatic decrease in particulate emissions, which could cause a short-term dramatic warming. Is that something that's studied, or is it so unfeasible that we'd actually do it that it's not of a concern?
1: So, Ken Caldeira,
7: shutting down coal plants could make the world hotter. Yes, some substantial fraction, probably over half the warming that's caused by our carbon dioxide emissions is offset by sulfur coming out of coal plants, largely from Asian coal plants, and if those were shut down instantaneously, the planet would warm up substantially. And if the Chinese, as they shut down their coal plants, maybe took 5% of that sulfur and put it higher in the atmosphere, they would maintain that cooling, and, and so that could be maybe done more thoughtfully and reduce those emissions by 95%, but still get the same cooling effect. Welcome. Hi. Um, when we talk about geoengineering, we hear a lot about the atmosphere. My question is, do we adequately understand enough about how oceans affect climate and ocean processes affect the climate? Ken Caldera, you've written yeah. about this. The deep ocean is very cold. On average, it's less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So one idea to cool the Earth is to bring some of this cold water up to the surface and then take this warm water to the surface and stuff it down into the deep ocean, And what we found in our simulations is that this warm surface water also helps maintain the clouds, and when this cold water was brought up, the clouds went away, and then the sun warmed this dark ocean surface, and by the end of the century, the planet was warmer than it would have been had you never attempted doing this. And so people are thinking about various ocean interventions just from a modeling point of view, but so far, I would say the... Proposals, at least the proposals that we've looked at haven't been very promising.
6: It's really interesting the way that the, the ocean has this huge controlling effect on climate, and yet the atmosphere gets all the attention. That's right, because the atmosphere is easier to change.
1: We're getting close to the end. I want to ask you what an average person listening to this can do to have an influence, not to uh, get involved in geoengineering in their backyard, but what an average person can do, Ken Caldera, to have a positive influence?
7: Well, it's good for people to reduce their own carbon footprints and so on. I think really this is a political problem that will be solved by changing our entire energy and transportation infrastructures. And so I think the most important thing that people can do is let their elected representatives know that uh, their votes depend on them supporting sound climate policy. Oliver Morton, what can an average person do?
6: You should get interested in the processes of the earth. You live on an extraordinary planet, and we understand that planet far better than we ever have before. And simply trying to partake of some of that understanding with a spirit of reverence and a spirit of awe to the extent that you want, but also with a spirit of fascination and wonder at the mechanisms involved, I think that's both politically useful and I think it's life-enhancing.
2: Greg Dalton has been discussing space fantasies and our real future with science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson, whose new book is Green Earth, Ken Caldera, a geoengineering expert at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University, and Oliver Morton, author of the new book, The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One conversation about powering America's future. (laughs) Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.